Good morning. Thank you. Well, I hope you've been reading in Ephesians because uh, everything I have to say for the next uh, few Sundays is going to be out of Ephesians. And what Paul, through the Spirit, reveals to us is so important. It's a real boon and benefit to how we live in the world today. And you may not realize it, I don't think I've ever said this in the almost 17 years I've been here. Isn't that mind-bending? But I put in easily 30 hours on these messages every week. I spend time on my days off to prepare because I think it's that important. So I hope you'll think it's important enough to spend some time reading in God's Word in the letter of Ephesians. I think you'll get a lot more out of uh, the time we spend together as we worship the Lord. And when we do, we ask the Spirit who illumines us to open our hearts, the eyes of our heart, which Paul speaks about even today. We're going to be in uh, chapter 1 this morning. Before I read, I was reminded this week of, I guess I'd call them stories of instant success. Stories of instant success. I got to kind of frame this for you because as a kid, it enchanted me to learn of the fact that some of the most famous movie stars had been discovered. I mean, that's how they began. Like they were sitting in a diner having a soda and someone came up to them and their entire life was changed. In fact, it's still happening. This week I Googled famous movie stars who were discovered. And of course, many links came up, you know, top 30 movie stars who were discovered or by chance and the odd circumstances and the fact that these are everyday people who happen to be kind of plucked out of their lives and plopped down in an entirely different life altogether. Ordinary people discovered by chance whose lives were changed from that point on. Who doesn't want that at a young age? I've never been discovered. In 1985, October 1985, Shelley gave birth to our second child, a baby girl. And I really wanted a baby girl. And I remember the first day we were there till late, just after midnight as I recall, and I went home and then I came back in mid-morning and spent the morning with Shelly and holding the baby and on my way home I felt <sighs> I 
It's hard, hard to find an adjective. I was floating. I was ecstatic. I was the luckiest guy on earth. And I spotted a mini-mart. And I had an idea, being the luckiest man on earth. It hadn't been but a couple of years, as I recall, that uh, California had legalized gambling through these lottos. So I bought two scratchers, $1 scratchers. I think that's what they were called. Uh, one in honor of our daughter, Susanna, and one in honor of Shelley. So $2. And I scratched them off. Nothing. <laughs> Not even a soda or a Slim Jim. But it got me to thinking, what if I had one? What if I was an instant somebody because I became a millionaire? And I went into the store one way and I left it a different way. And that began to work on me, that idea of that, kind of like when you're discovered, you're plucked out of your life and put, so to speak, in, dropped into another life, or more on the level of my experience, uh, you buy a $1 scratcher, you win $10 million, and immediately you leave the store a millionaire. And as I was thinking about that, I imagined the change in my outlook, leaving a mini-mart as a millionaire. The initial test for me, I imagined, was as I approached my car, somebody pulled into the space next to the one where my car was parked, and senselessly opened his car door into, I, it's a him because women wouldn't do this sort of thing, but he opened his car door into my car and dinged, he put a ding in the paint job of my secondhand car. Now, some of you would not be bothered by this, but I was raised by a very frugal, spendthrifty father. And some of you may know by the end of my last name, Venema, that we are of the Dutch pedigree, which has kind of a history or tradition of being careful with money and not being wasteful and realizing that it is only through hard, diligent, careful work and saving and taking good care of things. Oh, I was taught to take care of what I own, because 
It wasn't easily replaced. And it was wise to take care of the things I had so that they wouldn't have to be replaced. They would last a long time. And so in that vein, when you have, say, a 10-year-old car and you're trying to keep it nice and somebody opens their door into the side for a Dutch guy who's been raised like that, that's kind of a cataclysmic event in your life. But when you leave the store and you are a millionaire, it's a whole different way of seeing things. And so I imagine that my entire attitude, in fact, my upbringing and my past would in some ways be changed by this sudden event in my life. And that I would turn to that gentleman as he was getting out of his car and I say, no problem. It's just a ding. And besides, I can get another car door. In fact, I can get another car. In fact, I could get five cars. In fact, do you need a car? <laughs> Changed attitude. Changed perspective. This is how I began to imagine the way I should respond to the little dings of life, the little scratches, the insults, the unkindnesses that come with life, both small and big. Because not of winning the lotto or not being discovered, but because of Jesus Christ in my life. It's just that phenomenal. It's just that dramatic. In fact, it's more so if we comprehend what has happened to us in the order of our universe and world. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ and appropriate, which means to claim and to own what God says about who you are and who I am in Jesus Christ. That is really the focus and emphasis of what Paul is telling us in Ephesians in the opening of his letter that we call the first chapter. And last week, we looked at just one sentence, verses 3 through 14. And we were given this profound, tower-high, mountaintop experience in which we're allowed to see ourselves in Christ in the scope of what God has done in him before the foundation of the world that swallows up all of history, past, present, and future. Now we come to another sentence in verses 15 through 23.
For this reason, that is, for that first sentence we read, verses 3 through 14, for, for reason of what I have just shared with you, told you, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease, I continually, he could say, give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That's his thanksgiving. And now he, in verse 17, begins to intercede for everyone who will read this letter. And that includes us. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Let me just draw your attention to something that you may not have noted. He just identified three things, each beginning with the word what in the English Standard Version, and I believe it's that way in the NIV. But it revolves around the hope, this begins in verse 18, and the inheritance, that's in verse 18, and the power. What is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? And what is the measure of that power? What is the scope? Just what is some scale of that power? Like sometimes when I'm backpacking and I'll take a picture, and I'll take a big picture of a big mushroom, so I'll put my pocket knife down to, next to it so that you get some sense of how big it is. And so Paul does that when he uses the word according here. According to the working, that is God's working, of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to you and me, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Paul prays that we would discover who we really are because knowing God shapes and influences the way we see ourselves. Everything Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 changes the way we see our past, present, and future. And Paul prays here that we will know. He invokes the spirit of wisdom and revelation, which he asks God to give us, which is the Holy Spirit within the context of the repetition and the revolution, as it were, of Father, Son, and Spirit that he has been invoking in what he's telling us about God's master plan, how it's being implemented, brought to pass. And here he is saying, God, give them an added or an extra it's the appeal of his heart that somehow God would wake us up to know this in a deeper, richer, profound way, that it might instrumentally have an impact on the way we see ourselves and not only the way we see him. And that is why I say to know who we are, we need to know who God is. Because this revelation is all about us being his people, whom he calls the church. Know who you are by knowing who God is. And this is in Jesus Christ. Uh, just as last week I wanted to emphasize, and we could have talked about other things as well to emphasize in this respect, but nothing should be separated from Jesus Christ in our thinking. And I'll talk a little bit more about that, I believe, as we go on. You never know what's going to happen. I, I do every time I say, Lord, now I've done everything I can to prepare, but you're the editor-in-chief. Uh, you have final editing approval, and sometimes there are changes that do take place. But knowing about God is necessary to knowing God. And knowing God changes us. And it takes God from our head to our heart. Richard of Chichester in the 13th century prayed, may I know thee more clearly. Love thee more dearly, follow thee more nearly. Years ago, and I've never forgotten this story, Emery Griffin, in his book, The Mind Changers, told his story of a kindergarten teacher. Grandparents smile when they think of little children. She asked her kindergartners, to draw a picture of something they really cared about. And then she sat back and let them go at it. And after some time, student by student began to finish their pictures and bring the pictures up to the teacher. 
until finally only one student was left. That was little Johnny. So teacher tenderly walked over to Johnny and stood over his shoulder looking at what he was drawing. And then in a very gentle way said, what are you drawing, Johnny? And Johnny said, I'm drawing God. Johnny, nobody knows what God looks like. They will when I'm finished, he said. <laughs> Cute, isn't it? That a five-year-old should think that he could represent God in a drawing. But the heart of the gospel, the heart of God's mission in Jesus Christ is that we would be more like Jesus, that his church would reflect his heart, his character, his purpose in a way that reflects in community, in relationship, the transforming reality of the gospel in Jesus Christ. And in a way, that's making God visible to the world in a very profound way. And not just through perfection, not just through putting our best foot forward, but through asking forgiveness when we make mistakes making those corrections, admitting those faults, reconciling, just as God in Christ reconciled us to him and gave us the ministry, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We don't have to be perfect. We have to be real in Jesus. But the more Jesus Christ becomes prominent in our lives, when he becomes the most powerful force in our lives, people will begin to see the reality of the good news, not just in an individual, but in the interrelationship of individuals who have now become united under one name and in one person, Jesus Christ. Church is a messy thing. We make mistakes. Goodness sakes, sometimes people will say, well, we like you because you're real. Well, what else should I be? <laughs> and I do admit, I mean, I'm just like you. Pastors don't cease to have selfish streaks or moments. I mean, we're all trying to grow out of our old life and forget some of the things we learned and learn new things in God's Word and in Christ that transform the way we see the world, feel about the word, world, think about the world. And it affects the way we see other people, it affects the choices we make, it affects the words that we utter. That's what's going on. So we want to know the hope to which God has called us. 
That's one of the first three thing of the three things that Paul talks about. These are hard to unpack. But as you immerse yourself in God's word and even thinking about Jesus Christ, you'll grasp the hope that is ours in Jesus. Hope is not first our mood. but the good and meaningful things that God calls us to and the things that are true in Christ. Whether we find hope in them or not, they are hope, and we should see them as hope, and we do, and as we do, it changes the way we feel about ourselves and even our circumstances, even in perilous times because we have a greater foundation for true hope in Jesus Christ and what is revealed to us, not only here in Ephesians 1 and and in Paul's prayer, but throughout the New Testament. In, just to go back, I thought this was such a good example. It's kind of weird maybe to jump from Ephesians to the book of Judges, but God sent his angel, the angel of the Lord to Gideon. And I th- I, maybe you'll identify with Gideon like I identify with Gideon. And I'm starting in uh, verse 11, 12. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, says the angel of the Lord. And Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all, all this happened to us? You ever feel that way? Sure you do. Where are you, Lord, in the midst of this? Where are all his wonders, Gideon continues. Those wonders that our fathers told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and put us into the hand of Midian. And then the angel of the Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Think about that. No sooner has Gideon finished saying, You know, it's kind of hard for me to feel anything but abandoned and neglected in the midst of this situation in which we are in the clutches of a foreign people. So, you know, uh, I'm not feeling it right now. And the messenger of the Lord says, go in the strength you have. Gideon, get up and go. Step out and do it. Am I not sending you? You see, our hope is in the Lord. If he instructs us, if he says and promises, I will be with you, there's a hope there. And hope translates into a present confidence. Hope that is appropriated, hope that is claimed, hope that is processed and made 
my own or your own becomes a confidence. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan, you know, my tribe, my people, uh, we're the weakest, and I'm the least in my family. And this is what the Lord answered. I will be with you. I will be with you. It's great when there's a crowd, isn't it? We can all move together. But from the beginning of the Bible to the end, God is speaking to individuals and uniting them in common cause through faith when they respond to the hope that he calls us to by the very nature of what he inspires us to do and the trustworthiness of his word. The hope of our calling is even bigger than that. But I want us to appreciate that feelings follow knowing. Knowing hope brings hope. And Paul is praying that with this knowledge, we should step into who we really are in Christ Jesus. Who are the shapers of your hope? I thought it was so fitting. You know, you'd think that Joseph and I had talked at length about what he was going to talk about when he cited James 3 and, and talked about how, I'll just speak for myself, I don't know that I, I've kind of weaned myself off news, but you just can't escape it. Where do you get your good news? I mean, going back to the idea that if, uh, if you were discovered, well, how did you get discovered? An agent came and said, I can make you a movie star. That's how you got the good news. An agent spoke to you, and in your heart you thought, me? Me? And that agent said, oh, yes, you've got that look. You're perfect for the camera. Yeah, I can see you now. They're going to love you. You have to step into that belief. Or when you scratch off that little card, you know, that I wasn't able to scratch the way I felt lucky, um, and you go, I can't believe it. Is this real? You say to the teller, yeah, yeah, that's real. There, let me get the notification and we'll, you're going to be a millionaire. Man, it takes a while for that to sink in. You've got to step into that life. And then you actually hold the money in little bits and pieces. You don't get it all at once because there's taxes, of course. But in the same way, how do you get your news every day? TV, radio, internet, social media. What is the news that you're listening to? How does it shape the way you see the world? How does it make you feel? Do you feel minimized? Do you feel small? Do you feel like a victim or that you're vulnerable? Do you think, this world is out of control. What's going to happen to us? 
There are people that are responding to what's being spoken. We get it for, through friends, acquaintances, family. It's filtered to us all the time, but it shapes our perspective. It shapes the way we see the world. And it changes our attitude. It changes how we feel inside. It reduces our sense of meaning in life and even power and purpose. Maybe you know something of what I'm talking about. If you're not on or engaged in social media that much or getting the news that way, Fine, that's really okay, I think that's good. Because the only world that we can actually touch is the, like the space in this room. This right now is our world. This is the moment. This is, only, this is the only thing that matters right now. This is the present. This is the reality. All that other stuff that we learn about, the images, the stories, the news breaking. Have you ever met any of those people? Have they come to your door? Yes, you know they make policy. You know that they're suffering here and suffering there. But what about what you can actually do with your life? What about the people that you can actually talk to? Whether it's on the phone, at the door, at work, in the store, in the fields. How do you talk to them? Are you an encouragement? Do you have a hope within you that shapes the way you engage those people? Because the reality is, is that there are two voices, if you will. There's this voice from our society, our culture, our country, even the globe, that is constantly speaking to you in this variety of ways. And then, if you choose to listen to it, there's God's Word. And He's giving you a different message about who you are and the impact and influence you can have. And even though all that other stuff is going on around you, instead of it toppling you, bowing, bowing you down, draining you of energy, of hope, you can realize who you are in Jesus Christ, that you have a hope, an inheritance, power, not to just do our own thing, but to be a life force in the name of Jesus Christ in the lives of other people who are just as discouraged or defeated or puzzled as you are. And when you are that light in the gloom or the darkness, people will say, where did that light come from? Paul is saying in his prayer that we would have that knowledge, not just head knowledge, knowledge. And it's quite clear in the Greek that he wrote this letter in. This is a knowledge that just isn't so many facts. This is the kind of knowledge 
that really knows in the sense that, well, you know, I, I, I've told you how back in the 80s I, I made a special salsa and a guy even wanted to market the salsa and I still make it. I can't tell you the whole title of it, but it starts with Dr. John's. <laughs> oh, it's, it's the best sauce on the earth. I never give out the recipe. People always ask for it. But I did give it to my son-in-law. And every time he brings some over, and I think it's just fine, but in their household, they always say, Dad, what's, what's wrong with this? It isn't quite like yours. Taste it and see. You see, that's a knowledge that I'm trying to say we have and can have. That's the kind of knowledge that Paul is praying for, that we would have a knowledge of this hope, that it, it can't be brushed off because it's down inside of us, you know? It, it, it courses through our veins. It could not be eradicated. It will forever change the way we see ourselves and see the world. And no matter what comes upon us, yeah, we're human. So yeah, we might be buffeted, but we're not going to be knocked over because this knowledge we have of who we are and who we are because of who Christ is. And then he talks about the inheritance, the language of Knowing your calling and inheritance points to the notion of adoption. I had uh, some students uh, that were working in this passage, and they had a, were given an assignment to prepare six Bible studies for children that were in um, like an orphanage. And they actually went and taught them, but the exercise was good because it, the, the assignment was to translate what they would learn about the Father and the Divine Father figure and then translate that to these young children. I can't even imagine what it's like, but more and more kids are experiencing it that sense of abandonment that maybe nobody really loves them or cares for them. Even if that is our history this morning, it's all changed in what Paul is helping us to appreciate about who we are in Jesus Christ, that God loves us and he adopts us. That's the language that we saw right at the beginning of Ephesians. He adopts us. He removes every obstacle, and we become heirs. He even seals us, making us his own with the Holy Spirit. Now Paul is praying that we would have a deeper appreciation of that, there was a, a guy that I, I became very close to right here at Grace. He's, he's uh, since passed away, but he just, he would say to me, John, I know God loves me. I just can't believe he likes me. That is tragic. It really is. What prohibits you from thinking 
if you think that this morning, that God likes you? What stops you from believing that? It can only be the fundamental challenge that all of us faith in, face in living by faith. And that is to let him be supreme, even when it comes to my own point of view. You see, my friend, for all that he knew, so to speak, in his head, he couldn't get that God liked him, that element of love, that he was pleased, took pleasure in him through Jesus Christ. He couldn't get that into his head because God could not unseat his own opinion of himself. That's tragic. That's the kind of thing that Paul is trying to unseat when he prays that there would be depths to our understanding, to our knowledge of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, that it would get down deep within us and root out all of those long-held notions of who I am or who you are in our own eyes. Paul says, later in this letter, so I hope you'll be reading ahead in chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness put off and put on, put off and put on. John Piper wrote a couple of books. Some of you know John Piper, longtime pastor, um, scholar. He wrote books about God's pleasure in us because of his pleasure in Christ. He has given, I think, one of the best definitions of what it means to glorify God. I'll Quote him, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. I wish my friend could have gotten that element of satisfaction in God into his heart that he might have that sense of peace and rest and confidence that God loved him, even liked him, and know the greatness of God, his power. And that's found in verse 19. The first three chapters give us a towering perspective the first three chapters. Here's how chapter three ends. And it, it kind of echoes what Paul prays with respect to Jesus. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. You've got to give up to go up. 
the most important thing we need to fathom is Christ being Lord as exalted in power in us. He has to be Lord. He has to be recognized, acknowledged in my life as most powerful. This isn't about me or you being a superpower uh, or a superhero. The fundamental teaching of the, of the Old Testament and New is that as I humble myself, God exalts. Jesus himself fulfilled that and has been raised from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father. He is the one who has to be powerful in me and be powerful in you. And as we do that, we take on his character. Paul wanted to be exempted from a weakness. And God said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Jesus wanted the cup to be passed for him. Not my will, but thy will be done. And he willingly submitted himself unto the Father's will, and the Father elevated him. This power is unleashed when we let him be Lord, Lord of all in our lives. Will you stand with me? I'm going to pray for us. As you know, after I say amen, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff, elders, and their wives. If you would like to pray this morning, uh, God's put something on your heart to pray about a decision the Lord wants you to make or to intercede for another, we invite you to come. If you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, don't leave without knowing that. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for all we are because of all you are. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, God bless you.